Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of AOC. We're finally back on track, discussing Brian Lee O'Malley's seconds. Paul and I toyed with the idea of taking listener questions in an episode by the end of the year or early next year. If you want to leave us a question, there's a post on Blue Sky for you to respond to, as well as a channel in our podcast Discord. You can gain access to this Discord by pledging $3 a month over at patreon.com slash jaws underscore stone. You can also find us at tumblr.com slash theartofpod, at the Art of Podcast on Blue Sky, and at the Art of Comics Pod on Instagram. And the mood board for seconds is as follows. Put out a piece of bread and some old clothes for your house spirit before you settle down with your loudest, most fun sweater and your preferred beverage. Until next time, let's ingest some mushrooms. Joss, and I've officially hit the age where a bottle of wine is enough to knock me flat on my ass, so that's where I'm at today. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, and although I don't feel quite as bad as Jaws, I did have a bit too much mezcal last night. Have you ever wished you could go back for seconds without ever feeling full? Have you ever wished you could share something, but still keep it all to yourself? Life is a series of compromises, and sharing your spaces and dreams with others can be hard, but Katie's found a way to have her cake and eat it and give some to her ex-boyfriend, and serve it to her adoring customers in her new restaurant. Is this too good to be true? 1. Write your mistake. 2. Ingest one mushroom. 3. Go to sleep. 4. Wake anew. Because being a stubborn jerk, unwilling to do any introspection, will just flawlessly blend with said steps above. Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley is an agonizing journey through time and space, where the rules are made up and the point don't matter. So, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, I'm just going to introduce the characters to you. We have the main character, Katie, who has opened a restaurant, which is really popular, but has dreams of opening a new restaurant. We have her ex-boyfriend, Max, who is a bit of a douchebag, but everything he does is like gold to Katie. Then we have Hazel, who is a waiter in Katie's current restaurant and quite a quiet character who ends up playing a very large role in the plot because of her relationship with the house. And she always leaves out clothes and pieces of food for the house spirit, who we discover very early on in the story is actually real. Katie can see and interact with the house spirit. Hazel, although she leaves things out for the house spirit, can't. Our two different takes on the blurb have already got to the heart of this story, which is I can imagine how much you enjoy it is going to completely depend on how much you can tolerate Katie. So something occurred to me rereading this. 2015 was when I first read it. I do believe it was released in 2014. I bought this immediately after reading all of Scott Pilgrim, which I also really loved when I first read it and got my hands on it. And then I haven't really touched any Brian Lee O'Malley stuff until the last couple of years where I bought Snot Girl, volume one, two, three, which is written by Brian Lee O'Malley, but it's illustrated by Leslie Hung. I've just come to the conclusion that Brian Lee O'Malley writes inherently incredibly fucking dislikable characters, and I don't dig it. It's one of those things you've really got to be in the mood for. I've never read Scott Pilgrim, so... Everyone was making a huge deal about Brian Lee O'Malley when Seconds came out. And I was really excited because I was like, I can't be bothered to read a giant series. I don't have the cash for it. But I can buy this one self-contained book and experience this genius that everyone's talking about. He's having so much money spent on his stuff. And I read Seconds when it came out and was quite disappointed with it. 
it didn't seem to chime with the amount of hype that Brian Lee O'Malley was getting at the time. I didn't hate it, but it just seemed really predictable. But when I came back to it and read it again, again, perhaps because my expectations were relatively low, I remember not really enjoying it all that much. I really loved it this time around. (laughs) Interesting. I do love that. And I kind of hoped that would be the case. I did not hope that I would return to it and be as blarg as I am, but I did really hope that you would return to it and be like, oh, this is enjoyable because I do firmly believe that it leads to better conversations between us than just being, yeah, I liked it, yeah, me too, thumbs up, bye. Yeah, you know, because I remember it being really insubstantial and effectively meaningless and not really liking the main character very much. So this time around, I think when I settled in, I already knew all of those things. And so I was spotting things in it I'd never spotted before. And some of the things in it resonated more with me now that I've spent much longer living with other people as an adult. I want to ask what parts resonated with you? Well, when I first read it, all I saw was this sort of level that we both put in our blurb about somebody who just desperately was out of control of their life, trying to have these redos, taking these mushrooms, rewriting their life. But it didn't really feel like it went any deeper than that. It was just a fuck up trying to undo their fuck ups. Whereas when I read it this time, it suddenly clicked the two halves of the story, one with the house spirit, and the other is this redoing your life. But the redoing your life is all tied to the house. Everything else tied to the house is tied to Katie's life and her dreams and the people she's living with and the relationships she's got. And I suddenly realized there's this extra level of sharing space. Because when you, you know, when you live like that for a long time, you, you come to realize that everybody's dreams for their space and everybody's desires for their space, no matter how nice and lovely they are, are going to be different and you're going to clash about them. Because, you know, everyone needs their private world around them to a certain extent and everyone needs their house or their space to be the kind of thing that they want it to be. But it's just not possible for everyone to have that all of the time. And I thought that that was what I was picking up on the second time. And it made me more sympathetic to Katie, even though she is, <laughs> she is sort of really over the top. As a complete opposition to you, where you didn't care for it that much the first time around, and as I said, I really liked it the first time around, is a huge reflection on how much I've changed as a person in almost 10 years. In 2015, I was a very different person than I am today, and I think a lot of what I perceive now as more annoying characteristics and personality traits of Katie and the other characters in this comic, because to an extent, that's kind of one of my bigger gripes with it, is there's kind not a single character I like here aside of maybe the house spirit since I have changed so much in both what I enjoy in media but more importantly how much I've changed as a person I think all the egocentric traits and the incredible selfishness it was an uncomfortable reminder that I was kind of that jerk when I was much younger I was that egotistical and it's not a pretty mirror to look in like a memory mirror to look back and go yikes I do So that's one part of it. Not enough to ruin the entire experience, but another thing that really struck me today, right before we started recording, I told you that I'd started watching the Scott Pilgrim anime, and you asked me my thoughts, and I said I would reply to it in the episode. With the pharaoh sounding like a boomer come anew, I just think these stories do not resonate with me anymore. I've gotten too old for them. I think they are noisy and over the top, with no real resolution or payoff by the end, at least to me. I super respect that some people will approach these stories and have a complete different takeaway than me. I mean, you obviously did. 
But to me, it was just... I felt annoyed more or less the entire time reading this. And it's not even because... I don't think it's poorly done, per se. I don't think this is a bad comic. I just really inherently do not think it's for me. It's interesting, because I actually think that we're going to share a lot of opinions about the overarching substance of the story. But it sounds like, weirdly enough, for almost the same reasons as each other, you didn't enjoy the ride, and I enjoyed the ride. I was also recognising myself in these characters. It did make me squirm a little bit, but it also made me kind of giggle at myself and be like, yeah, I've met people like this, and it's sort of nicely observed. And However, when it came to the story concluding itself and tying up the themes that it had presented and concluding the arcs of these characters, I felt that it was incredibly trite. It just tied it all up in a nice bow. Katie got everything she wanted, despite the fact that she had done it all the wrong way all the way throughout. And all of the things that the story had very interestingly shown her compromising on or having to negotiate with the people around her, she suddenly sort of got for free, in essence. There was one panel, actually, which really made me laugh. Page 318. Katie is in the office with her ex-partner. Not romantic partner, her ex-business partner. She's literally telling her business partner what she's learned throughout the story. And then her business partner points to a sign, like a live, laugh, love style sign, sitting above his office desk, which reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I thought that was really funny, that the entire moral point of the story was sort of encapsulated in this sort of silly cliche trite phrase sitting on a wall and had been all along it kind of showed how you know Katie could have just got it but she wasn't old enough or she wasn't wise enough or or you know she just wasn't there with the rest of the characters or whatever I don't know dude when I got to the end I felt like I was swallowing nails because I'd already endured this entire comic with a thing that I personally do not enjoy all that much. I, I can certainly not come up with any examples from the top of my head that I actually do like this storytelling format. And it's the wise guy joke cracking narrator, which in this book is Katie herself from third person explaining her own life. It is such an annoying exposition dump to have that voice float over in dark panels with white font describing basically what is already happening in the comic. And it's like, oh my god, you and I had the most cathartic rant a while back about games like Horizon Zero Dawn, where the main protag talks out loud to themselves for no fucking reason other than to feed the audience and audio feedback on whatever the fuck is going on around them. I don't need a bratty-ass teenager to reiterate the scenario to me with a fucking attitude. I'm like, my brother in Christ, I'm just playing a game here, and I'm too <laughs> old for this nonsense, so it's circa 15 years too old. So please, just let me play the game. And that was kind of my feeling with Seconds, where everything has already happened because it's been drawn and there has been dialogue within the comic itself that characters more or less organically have with one another. 
And then suddenly you have this annoying ass third voice out there sassing on her choices and just bringing home the point that she is struggling with confidence issues and whatever the not. Like she isn't certain of her choices, but that's kind of fucking obvious from how the character is written. And I get that this is probably a humor bit and it's probably just part of O'Malley's writing style, but it is so not for me. This is really fascinating because we're having these strange sort of like reversed relationship with the story. I could have said exactly what you said when I first read the book. It just irritated me every time that narration popped up. I was just like, stop it, stop it. (laughs) And this time round, maybe it was just that I already knew it was there. So I'd braced myself for it. But it entertained me and it entertained me because there was an extra little level to it, which is that it's Katie's uncertainty. Yeah, that's kind of obvious. But what I liked is that she responded to it sometimes as if it was an actual entity in the story and contradicted it or told it to shut up. And you saw like exactly how tunnel vision she was in that she already knew the right thing to do because the narration was telling her the right thing or, you know, pointing out the bad thing. Again, it's really valid. And this is 100% going to be probably the most critical I've been on any episode without leaving the episode with the opinion of hating this product because I really don't. I do not hate it, but I must firmly admit that it just is not my kind of thing. The way that my taste has changed so much and developed in a completely different direction, this is the sort of stuff that I feel like you could hold this book open in front of me and go like, ah, isn't this so funny? Ah, it's so funny. And I'm just looking at you with a deadpan face going, (laughs) yeah, I get you're telling me to laugh right now and I'm not laughing. It is not funny. We've both been on both sides of the fences with this book. Sometimes, if you're outside a joke slightly, it can push it so far in the other direction that it's more than just a joke you didn't get. It's actively irritating. That's a very strange thing about humour. Yeah, I do also think a big reason for my dislike of this story in general is what we're kind of both circling around and circling back to over and over, is that there is no reckoning for Katie's actions. And you could read that as a, yeah, you're allowed to fuck up and that's part of life and life is messy and sometimes you make mistakes and you make choices that aren't always the most suitable. And I am firmly in the camp of forgive and learn, you know? But not once did I actually get the feeling that this specific character lived or fucking learn. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing she want to do is to eat these mushrooms and fix mistakes and sometimes the mistakes are so minute why are you going back to fix this this was the least of the issues happening today this is the overarching theme that you need to fix if you're first gonna go fixing something and i guess again this is probably the entire point of the story it's not that i'm dumb and missing it it's just that i get frustrated sitting here reading this and i feel like the character's focus is on all the wrong things and if that is the entire point of the story congratulations you really made that point hit home (laughs) But like I said, and we've said several times by now, that by the end of it, there's this... Like, I felt like someone was deep-throating me cotton candy by the time the last, like, 30 pages wrapped up, and it was basically a Disney ending. Oh, and then they were happily and lived together for the rest of their life, and everything was perfect. It's like, yeah, sure, I'm sure some people love those endings. I certainly fucking don't. You'd really get no indication 
that there was any takeaway for Katie as a character here. For me, the reader, yeah, uh, plenty of takeaways. I would have avoided a lot of these scenarios, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but you really do not get any kind of sense, at least I did not, not remotely, get any feeling for her having any sort of either guilt or regret or any of those things towards everything that she just sent down this shit slide. If I were to pause at the end where everything's, you know, we've had this escalating series of events where Katie has discovered these mushrooms. She starts off fixing very trivial problems with her life and then she gets bolder and bolder and bolder and closer and closer and closer to the heart of what's wrong with her and her life, changing bigger and bigger things every time. Then it gets to a peak where she's realized she's completely fucked up. The house spirit helps her out and sort of resets things in their entirety. And at that point, if I were to guess what the ending would be, it would be that she'd realized through living all of these lives that she hadn't chosen, that she didn't necessarily actually want all the things she thought she wanted. No, none of those, none of those things were the case. And maybe the, the final thing was that her boyfriend was never all that bad, but he was a numpty. You know, <laughs> He's he such never... a fucking doorknob. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, I didn't fall in love with him during the process and I didn't feel Katie falling in love with him. Why did she want him back? I've got no clue. It's like, maybe we're trying too hard. And the joke of the whole book is that she never learns anything. Dude. And that she's just about to do it all again. You know what? I think you're 100% right. You're just like in a microwave blew my brain. Because we talked about a while back how it would be so interesting seeing the Scott Pilgrim anime being released and seeing a much younger, much more sensitively attuned audience try to wrap their head around that Scott Pilgrim is a shitty ass fucking character. He is not a likable protag, and that's not the point. He is written to be a fucking cum bucket, because I'm pretty fucking sure that Brian Lee O'Malley <laughs> himself has confirmed that to be the fact. If you go into that story and you expect that Scott is going to be a good guy that you should be rooting for and you should be in his corner, you're sorely mistaken. Maybe that's the... You know what? I, I think you're so right. I think we are, especially me, I think I'm super overthinking this. And once again, I'm going in with the expectation of there being some form of meaningful lesson here. But the lesson, I guess, is that some people just fucking suck and some people don't learn from their mistake and they will keep <laughs> repeating them over and over and over until they fucking die. Maybe something small will stick along the way. Or maybe it won't or maybe it'll stick for half an hour and then it will fall off again. Like, I've known people like that in my life before who just don't seem to be able to learn a lesson or see themselves or... A funny story about somebody like that, I guess, isn't for everybody, but it's an interesting take on the world. Yeah, I am glad that you pointed out that maybe we are reading too much into it and maybe there really is no huger lesson of life takeaway here. Because that does mellow... I mean, it doesn't mellow my experience because that is what I felt when I read it, but it does mellow my aftermath. The fact that this episode kept being postponed and we weren't able to record time and time again, I just felt myself carrying that annoyance inside because I was so ready to talk to you <laughs> and feel a release yeah. of this experience and be like, ah, oh, I need Paul to set me straight and I need to air my grievances. And then I just walked for like almost a month seeing people online being super excited that we're going to cover this and people going, oh, I love Second Sounds. And you're like, well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. I'll tell you what I think of seconds. Yeah. It felt like Witch Hat Atelier all over again, where when we announced that we were doing that, people were so happy. And I haven't heard from a single one of those people afterwards. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. Yeah, I knew this wasn't going to be kind of my absolute favourite read because, again, it's not the kind of thing that I typically tend to like. When we talked about Horizon Zero Dawn, you remember I was saying that it was written in the kind of Joss Whedon school of sassy, quippy humour all of the time. And, you know, when I was 13, I enjoyed Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But as an adult, I'm not into that kind of humour. And this isn't quite that, but it sits nearby in that it's constant sass. It's constantly self-referential. I think that it's for some people and it's not for others. And maybe it suits a younger audience. Maybe even it suits a period audience. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what the reaction to Scott Pilgrim is in general, whether it's just watched by people with a really fond memory of the original and enjoying it because of that, or whether it actually garners a new audience. Yeah, I personally think that Scott Pilgrim, the anime, will definitely attract a younger group of people just because it's hella flashy. I've seen two episodes now and it's beautiful. I really enjoy how they adopted the art style of Brian Lee O'Malley. It is so suitable for anime because Brian Lee O'Malley has like the big oogly eyes and the bold lines and it fits right in there without being obviously anime from the get-go. You know, I actually did have the thought that I'm still on Tumblr because, you know, I'm dead inside and no other social media is really working anymore (laughs) anyway, so why not? And it occurred to me that I would not at all be surprised if we suddenly see a rise of people blatantly inspired by Brian Lee O'Malley's Scott Pilgrim, the anime, especially the color palettes and the bold line art and the very square shaped body language. In the near future, just like we've seen for a while, everything was very Steven Universe coded, etc, etc. Like whatever is the big thing with middle to late teenagers tends to affect the internet art space for a while within that age group. I think one of the things that kind of bugged me about this book on both reads is that the concept of the plot is so similar to a book by one of my favorite authors called The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. And The Lathe of Heaven is a dense, really interesting social commentary in which a psychiatrist discovers that they can change reality by manipulating the dreams of their client. This psychiatrist has this sort of like messiah complex and thinks that he can fix everything wrong with the world. That's got sort of some really, really kind of hard-hitting, underlying, not lessons exactly, but interesting observations on the way that the world works and how you can't have everything all at once. Whereas Seconds sort of happily skips around all of those deeper things in a cheeky way. It's indicative of the kind of book it is, I I think, and the kind of storytelling inside. Yeah, and I guess to the defense of Seconds, I am firmly in the camp that you can take a very high concept and distill it to a point where it is on a very singular personal level. It doesn't have to be that grand world building scenario kind of stuff. And you know my personal feeling on world building, I've certainly ranted about it in the past. It doesn't interest me that much and it quickly loses my attention when I have to learn about the kingdom of blue de blue with the politicians of blah de blah with the beepity beepity boop and the bopity bopity bop. My brain just like completely fogs over at some point. It's worth a note here, Lathe of Heaven isn't 
fantasy in the slightest. It's this, it sounds like a fantasy, but it's actually just a, a regular story. Okay, okay. That is fair. But still, the concept in itself is fantasy adjacent because it's not something that's possible in real life. Right, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, that you can have a concept that, depending on in which hands it rests, that it can expand very far and involve a lot of people, or it can be on a very mm. private level like it is in the story with Katie. And I personally have no problem with that because I like those intimate stories. What happened if the chosen one isn't the chosen one for the world, but just for their own life? Yeah, absolutely. But I wanted to ask you, actually, and this sort of ties into it, when it got to the point where the worlds that she was accidentally creating, or as we discover, hopping into, started becoming fantastical and full of strange things like giant corpses walking through the landscape and skeletons serving at her restaurant, how did you feel about that? This is where I think the comic shines for me, and I guess that says a lot about me as a person, but I love when it gets fucky-wucky. I just don't enjoy how Katie interacts with all of this, because just like, once again, we talked about before, Gordon, <laughs> we talked about Silent Hill Ascension, how the character just doesn't react to the monsters around him in a believable way. That's kind of my takeaway with Katie as well. And I don't need 20 pages of her having a mental breakdown about everything being scary, but I do feel that the atmosphere is excellent. It, it creates unease. Suddenly there is visible ramifications for her fucking around and finding out. She is now in the finding out stage of eating those mushrooms. And I do think it's executed in, at least for me, a very satisfying way of just showing tears and reality, basically, of how everything just melts together in this fuck soup of people looking weird or downright scary. And finally, they feel like there is some payback for what she's doing. But then, as we talked about, it just fizzles out because once again her way too generous and kind house guardian comes to her rescue and fixes it magically because apparently she's fucking god then we're just back to scratch and she learned nothing and there were no takeaways and that kind of leads me to <laughs> one of my many pet peeves with this but in a story-driven sense one part of me understands why the housing spirit is loyal to katie because it's katie's house but it's Hazel, one of the co-workers, who has been continuing feeding this house spirit with clothes and food and compassion. <laughs> I feel like in a way that, why the fuck is Katie reaping all the benefits here when Hazel is clearly the one that should be living the high life with this house spirit? Oh, now this is something I actually have a bit of a take on this in this second read, because I remember thinking that the first time round. And I suddenly realized that if you see the story from the house spirit's point of view, what you're actually seeing is that the house spirit loves Hazel and Hazel is incredibly awkward around everybody except Katie who rides over her awkwardness and acts like a friend to Hazel even if she's a crappy friend. If you see it from that perspective all the house spirit ever does is fix things for Hazel by making sure that Katie remains her friend. It's the one continuity between every single reality even when she resets things for everyone else Hazel always remembers their relationship. And I guess the implication is that if Katie had just never found the mushrooms and had been super concerned about Hazel and gone to the hospital and visited her and talked to her, she would have made friends with her anyway. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah, I completely missed that. But now that you say it, it's so fucking obvious. This all happens because Katie is busy hooking up with the chef in the back room. So they're leaving Hazel to her own... <laughs> I don't know, clumsiness or whatever you want to call it. And then she accidentally just gets cooking oil all over her arms. 
And then she is offered the recipe to fixing this from the house. So yeah, you're 100% correct on that. That just went over my head. But that actually opens up to another angle that I kind of wish was the main angle of the story. It would, it would not have been the same story at all. But I wish the main character was the house spirit. I wish we saw everything from their point of view. Then I think Katie would have been an annoying character still, but not someone I had to spend so much fucking time with in the same way. Yeah, that would have been really interesting perspective on all the things going on in the house. Yeah. And it did feel like there were times when we were seeing it like that, especially in those moments when you saw things from sort of a high angle. Mm-hmm you could see all of the rooms of the house laid out almost like a map. I really appreciated those perspectives. Yeah, that would have been a really fascinating take on this story, I think. Oh my god, but I saw a joke yesterday, and this would fit perfectly. There was a post where Riley O'Malley is shaking hand emojis with Stephanie Meyer in recreating their love child three times. Because you have Scott Pilgrim, the comic, (laughs) and then you have Scott Pilgrim, the live action, and then you have Scott Pilgrim, the anime. And with Twilight, you have Twilight, the books, Twilight, the movies, and then Twilight from Edward's perspective. (laughs) So they just keep releasing (laughs) the same fucking shit all over again. And I'm over here like, hmm, yeah, you know, it's not so unreasonable to think that he could have it in him to create seconds a second time. I would read that, I think, actually, especially if it was from the Hell Spirits perspective. I think that could be a load of fun. Did you notice at one point that Scott and Ramona are in a, are in a panel? Yes, I did. How did you feel about that? I'm glad you brought it off because I actually wondered. Yeah, this comes back to something that I noticed in this read that I didn't notice in my previous read, which is that at one point, the house spirit tells Katie that she's not changing reality, or Katie realizes this, that she's not changing reality. She's hopping from one reality to the next. That made me realize that when she's reality hopping, she just hopped to the Scott Pilgrim reality. But it also made me realize an extra implication of that particular plot element, which is that Katie has fucked up all of these realities and then ditched on them, but they still exist. Oh, yeah, I... So, full disclosure, time travel is not my cup of thing. It makes my brain hurt, and I do think it leaves a lot left to be desired in very many stories. But my takeaway on this one, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but it wasn't so much that she is ditching on a reality. It's that that reality is happening with or without, quote-unquote, our Katie. This is just one of many plot threads in or branches in the tree that we're presented to of fate where this route would have taken hold anyway, and that's just one story that Kate happens to jump in on and then jump out of. And that story has already happened and will continue to happen with or without our Katie in it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yeah, and I guess both interpretations are valid. Like, you could see her jumping in and screwing things up with her presence, or you could just see her experiencing a small slice of the screw-up that she would be experiencing anyway, and there's no way to tell which one's the case. I guess, as with all kind of reality-hopping, time travel stories, it becomes a little pointless over-examining this kind of element of them because you start to move away from the point of things, which is that we're being presented with one narrative and it's not an open invitation to have a metaphysical discussion about the nature of time travel. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I do appreciate with this story is it's never really about the time travel itself. The science behind the time traveling is really not important for the narrative. I mean, she's eating fucking shrooms to jump between chapters of space and time. So 
that really yeah. isn't important. And I think that therein lies my general gripe with time traveling stories in general is that some of them tend to be very grandiose and rest in the description of how their time travel works and in the end you're just sitting there like does it though you can always tear it apart because there's a million different ways that time travel just does not work or if it does there's so many points easily missed to it and that's where i go okay but if you make an entire fucking point of this you are making me focus more on the math that is time travel than the story you're trying to tell here and there i firmly believe that second succeed in just making time travel a point of the story but not the main thing yeah absolutely totally agreed about seconds i had a question for you though yeah would you eat the mushrooms (laughs) now this is a really interesting question there's an angle on the book that we haven't really covered yet katie's got an incredibly addiction prone personality i think i recognize myself in that i have to restrain myself from a lot of things for example i've never played an mmo because I know that if I did, it would consume my life. I was looking at those mushrooms thinking, damn, yeah, I could have done with a couple of those, especially (laughs) when I was younger. But also, I saw exactly the same trajectory for myself that happened for Katie, where once you have one and you realize that you can change things, it becomes more and more tempting to change extra things. And I've seen elements of my life, thankfully very trivial ones, escalate in that way before. That's something that I've come to understand about myself only really in the last kind of five, six years or something. That was another reason that I kind of chimed with the story a little bit more because I was seeing someone else dealing with that same inability to just say, no, it's enough is enough right now. Yeah, it it made Katie more understandable. So probably yes, and definitely shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? So my thing is that i get hyper fixations so i can go off the deep end for a couple of weeks and then i'm tired of it and then i move on so if i were to indulge i would eat a couple and be like yeah i'm getting off this ride bro this is not working (laughs) so i don't think i would ever hit that deep fuck up point that katie does the more i think about it yeah younger me would have done this to fix incredibly meaningless things that today doesn't remotely bother me but back then was heaven and earth me now No. I mean, I feel like you can just look at me and see that either I don't fear the consequences or I have a complete fucking lack of consequential thinking because I'm heavily covered in tattoos. Some of those tattoos are (laughs) pretty fucking YOLO. I am very much a person who believe in uh, fucking around and finding out within reasonable borders. Never, hopefully not to a degree where you seriously hurt someone or, you know, I don't mean in these large scenarios, but if it is like dyeing your hair pink or getting that dumbass tattoo or eating food and shitting your brains out because you're lactose intolerant or something like (laughs) those kind of things, those relatively harmless things in the big scheme of things. I am very much an advocate for doing those because they usually bring growth. You learn that you're lactose intolerant or you learn that you either love or hate tattoos. And more than anything, it tends to give stories to tell. What is people if not stories to tell? And I wouldn't be without my stories. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't try it, at least, then you're never going to have that story to tell or that kind of richness of life to look back on and i think it depends on personality to a certain extent i can definitely as i said earlier i can recognize having done those things but also that you know i do have this odd addictive self-indulgent personality that i have to rein in a little bit one interesting thing i was just flicking through this book 
We've talked a lot about the substance of the story, the characters and the delivery and what we meshed with. But quite unusually for us, we haven't really talked at all about how it looks and reads. And that's usually, we focus a lot on that more. Yeah, I do think I've noticed that when I focus a lot on the visual delivery, maybe it is because it's taking up such a huge part of the narrative in terms of, I mean... Comics are, in my opinion, 70% visual and 30% story, like written story. I guess with this book, the story kind of got in the way of the art for me, where I enjoy O'Malley's art style. I think it's fun. It's whimsical. It's uniquely his. I would recognize it in the heartbeat anywhere. I actually took out my Scott Pilgrim collection today and looked at that, and I was shocked at how... (sighs) I could tell that Seconds is much more refined. And to be fair, this is something that I also want to mention is that he did not make this one alone. He had an assistant, a drawing assistant called Jason Fisher. He had a colorist called Nathan Fairbairn. And he had a letterer called Dustin Harbin. And then he had additional assistance provided by Megan Messina, Hannah Iobi, and Jeremy Arambulo. So this was a big group project. It's wrong to give all the credit to Riley O'Malley alone on this, because this was definitely a group effort. And I think it shows, because it looks very different than Scott Pilgrim. I've been very, very careful within that environment to always be like, we really need to put the other creators as close to the front of the book as possible in terms of credits. I would have completely missed these extra credits if you hadn't pointed them out, because they're nowhere near the cover. They're in the half-title page before the imprint. But still, you know, I would have wanted them at least on the back cover, if not the front cover. Yeah, I agree. I feel it's very much a product of this industry as a whole. And I do feel like we touch upon this several times, which is why I am so hellbent on bringing it up. Because I am myself am either friends and or mutuals with several colorists and or letterers. And they never get the credit they deserve. It's in the similar ballpark for me when I'm so sick and tired of the writer getting so much fucking credit when drawing a comic is so much more of the work. Yeah, that's interesting as well. Like, Scott Pilgrim is all black and white, right? Yes, it is. I do believe they re-released it in a color edition, but I have the black and white one. Because I'm just, I'd opened a page to sort of comment on the artwork. 24 and 25, which I thought flowed beautifully. Really funny moment when Katie's ex smiles at her and we see her transported by this douchey smile. It's brilliant because you get a read on his character. You can instantly tell what sort of a lazy jerk he is. (laughs) And you can instantly tell how ridiculously taken in Katie is by something as simple as him grinning at her. But a lot of the quality and the impact of this page is in the lettering. Sorry, lettering and colouring. There's a beautiful piece of negative space framing the bit where it says Max, Katie's ex. So you're drawn to that immediately. And then that's juxtaposed immediately with her reaction, which is this sort of like... (laughs) (laughs) And then the choice to make that panel pure white, where she's being transcendently affected by his smile. Again, brilliant. The muted run-together colours as she's melting. Really nicely done. And presumably these were a combination of Brian Liam Alley's choices and creative decisions being made by the rest of the team really effectively. Yeah, and I think more than anything, it serves as such an important reminder that I can not hammer home enough that nothing is created in a vacuum. You do need people to even if they don't actively participate in the end product you do need outside sources to tell you 
Like, you're on the right track. You're, you got this. Like, this is working. Or, hey, this is confusing to me. Could you clarify a bit more, etc.? And if you don't have that, if you're too afraid to share your creative endeavor with anyone, not to sound like a fucking buskill, but big chances is not going to be a very good end result. Yeah, I feel like we have come to the natural conclusion that is Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley. Do you feel satisfied with everything we've discussed so far? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think we've discussed the hell out of it. I don't really have many notes left. I've been really fascinated by the twists and turns in our conversation. It's been great. Despite my reading experience, which was initially not that fun, it's been a delight to finally blarg it all out with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, as always. Next episode, we are reading It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth by Zoe Thorogood. Excellent. And I'm looking forward to this because I'm coming to it completely cold. I think this was one of your recommendations, wasn't it? It is. I am too coming to it completely without any prior knowledge, other than I do suspect it is very heavy. So there might be trigger warnings by the beginning of the episode, but we'll uh, get to that when we get there. Okay. Well, looking forward to some heavy reading then and to talking to you next time. Bye. Bye. But some of your food triggers are like eating Jesus again. And you go, no, I'm, I'm willing to take the L and poop my brains out today. And then you sit there pooping your brains out and your butthole is on fire. And you're just like, is this the second coming of the apocalypse? Is this too? Nah, nearly. And I'm feeling like a walking cum sock. And I'm like, I hate this. This is uh, gross. Uh. <laughs> I'm very glad that I know this about myself because I could easily just find myself tied up in some cult somewhere (laughs) and then just look back and be like, oh, I'm in a cult. (laughs) That's so funny because I've been told several times that I could have been a cult leader. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, where is this headed? Yeah, I'm I'm like, is is this our podcast dichotomy, Paul? Sort of like... (laughs)